Hello, my name's Ben Luke. Welcome to the very first Art Newspaper Weekly podcast. Each week we'll bring you interviews and discussion on some of the art world's big stories. Coming up on this week's pod, the British sculptor Rachel Whiteread opens a big show at Tate Britain in London. I went there to interview her. This survey really is the story of my life, you know, and if you walk through the show, you'll really understand that, that time and that journey. But first, at the National Gallery in London this week, a conference was held to talk about the complex issue of Nazi-era loot and its return to its original owners. Martin Bailey has written countless articles on this subject over more than 25 years at the art newspaper. Martin was at the conference and joins me in a moment. Before that, here are a few words from the UK Arts and Heritage Minister John Glenn, speaking at the conference. The Holocaust Act and, and claims consideration process must continue indefinitely. So we will introduce legislation to allow that at the earliest opportunity. Martin, I thought we'd start by establishing a couple of definitions because we talk about spoliation and restitution and we should probably define what those mean in this context. Spoliation in the context we're talking about is the Nazi era, which is from 1933 to 1945. And um, in many cases, um, it's violent seizure of artworks, but it was also forced sales when Jewish people had enormous pressure put on them and had effectively to sell their possessions. So it's the two things, it's looting and forced sales. Now, the um, conference that was held at the National had a rather sort of ominous title and was billed as the final opportunity to address address this subject. Was this sort of hyperbolic guff or was there some sort of um, sense? Is there some sense in this idea of time running out? I think it was a rather unfortunate title, um, actually. First of all, it's obviously got resonances with what um, Hitler did. But uh, what the intention behind it was to say, look, we're coming to the era when people who were uh, alive during the Second World War and actually suffered, died, uh, have have already died. But of course, most of them actually died um, decades ago, and many um, died or were killed in Auschwitz and other death camps. Uh, But it's an issue which should have been tackled much earlier. It should have been tackled immediately after the war in the late 40s. And for various reasons, it only really became an issue in the 1990s. So I suppose we're making up for lost time uh, when we're saying that uh, we've got to we've got to hurry on with this process. So tell me about the the UK's recent history in this area. And so there has been a law in place which essentially allows the restitution of objects which might be in British public collections to their original owners. Yes, I mean, I think there are two elements that are important. The first is the creation in in the year 2000 of the Spoliation Advisory Panel. And this is a panel set up by the government, but it's independent and it advises on claims. So if a private individual claims an object from a UK museum, it then goes towards to the panel which considers it. And they make recommendations which in practice are always accepted by the government and museums. Uh, The other element is that many UK national museums are not allowed to deaccession or to get rid of um, items which are in their collections. And this is a real problem in some cases. Some claimants are happy to receive money, but uh, many want to receive the original object. So um, in 2009, the UK um, government passed, a, the Parliament passed uh, a new law which enabled 
national museums to deaccession in the cases of Nazi loot. And what's happened now is that it was for a 10-year period which expires in 2019. So the government has now said that he want, it wants to extend this period indefinitely to deal with Nazi-era loot, uh, whether it takes place um, in a few years' time or indeed in 50 years' time. How does the UK compare to other nations? To, how does the UK government and UK museums compare to their equivalents overseas? Um, the UK government system actually works very well, but of course it's fairly easy for the British. And the reason is that not a huge amount of looted art came to the UK. I mean, most of it tended uh, to stay in the countries um, of mainland Europe. So um, the countries that are most involved and had representatives at the meeting this week was France, the Netherlands, Germany and Austria. That's where most of the looted art ended up. So it is easier for the UK to deal with it, but they have done so very effectively. And are museums and um, politicians in those countries making similar sort of outward efforts to deal with this subject? Yes, there are similar um, institutions to the UK's Spoliation Advisory Panel. I mean, they're different in each country, partly because the circumstances are different. But the basic aim is the same, uh, which is to provide some sort of system whereby claimants against museums can go through a sensible process rather than having to go to uh, the recourse to the law, uh, which creates all sorts of hurdles and problems. Now, it seems fairly obvious that public bodies might behave well in this area, but then there's the thorny issue of the market. And we know that there are unscrupulous people acting in the market. How, how is the market approaching it? Is, it, is there a strategy in the marketplace um, to deal with this issue? It's more complicated. The auction houses are very correctly now taking a tough line and investigating uh, works which might have an unclear provenance uh, for the 1933-45 period. Uh, they did not um, some years ago, but they do now. And that's excellent. The art trade has not done so much. And one of the most interesting proposals, I thought, at the conference this week was um, a UK uh, dealer who stood up and said that the art trade should openly give the provenance for the 1933-45 period when dealers are selling such works. And if they don't know what the provenance is, they should specify provenance unknown. And that's, that proposal has now sort of been put on the table, if you like, but a lot of members of the art trade are not going to like it. So we'll see what happens. Can you say why they're not going to like it? They're not going to like it for a number of reasons. First of all, it involves uh, research, and that takes time and therefore costs money. So they don't particularly want to do that. And if an artwork has an unclear provenance, other things being equal, it's not going to be as attractive and the price may not be quite as high. Now, Martin, I mentioned at the top that you've been reporting on this subject for many years, and there is one particular case where you had a very personal involvement in the restitution of an object to Italy. Yes. Can you tell us about that story? Yes. Well, it was quite an extraordinary story. I mean, in the year 2000, someone tipped me off that the British Library had a, a, a missal, a biblical manuscript, which was 900 years old, which might have been looted in Italy. So I thought, well, this will be interesting to look into for the art newspaper. So I did some research on it 
and I went out to Benevento, which is near Naples, to do more research there about it. And um, I met the archbishop there, and I saw Benevento Cathedral. It had been bombed by the British during the war, bombed really to the ground, and, uh, and had been completely rebuilt with lots of artworks lost. And I got more and more interested in this story, and it turned out to be a most unusual case because it was a case where a British army officer had done the looting, and the victim was not Jewish, as in most of the cases, but was the um, Catholic cathedral. Initially, when I talked to the archbishop, he said, oh, Britain will never return uh, return this um, missile. There's no use putting in a claim. Is it, uh, is it right he'd put in an earlier claim as well, some time ago? There was a claim in 1978, but it was rejected very quickly, statutes of limitations and that sort of thing. And um, when I talked to the archbishop, he said, oh, there's no chance of the British Library returning it. Uh, what is the point of even asking for it? And then I explained that this new spoliation advisory panel had been set up and it would be at least worth having a try. And I met some of the um, cathedral uh, officials and one of them, uh, who was very elderly, actually remembered uh, recovering these manuscripts just immediately after the cathedral had been bombed and taking them on a handcart to the outskirts of Benevento and he could remember it. And it was at some point after that that they were looted. Now, the next part of the story is that the missile was bought um, in Naples by a British army officer. He sold it at Sotheby's in 1947, fetched £400, and then it sat in the British Library because it was bought by the British Library. So anyway, the Archbishop put in a claim to the Spoliation Advisory Panel, and the panel recommended that the missile should be returned to Benevento. But the problem then was that the British Library was prohibited under law from deaccessioning, so it could not be returned. And this led to pressure on the government to change the law, and new legislation was introduced, which enables national museums, such as the Brit- and that includes the British Library, to deaccession. And in 2010, that was all done, and the missile was sent back uh, to Benevento. And I went back for the event. I was accompanied by the UK lawyer who had advised Benevento, Jeremy Scott, who did an excellent job. And uh, he took uh, the missile in a uh, a special case which had been made by the British Library. Um, It sat on the aeroplane seat uh, next to him. Uh, We then uh, went into town to the cathedral. And just when we got to the uh, door of the cathedral library, the official I was with realised he didn't have the right key and he didn't want to put the box on the ground because it was slightly damp. So he gave it to me to hold whilst he got the key and he then uh, opened the door and I was still holding the box so I actually took it through over the threshold of the library. And we then went to the cabinet uh, where the um, missile had been stored and it was, I think it was an 18th century cabinet with the most important of the Benevento manuscripts um, there. And Benevento manuscripts are particularly important because they had a unique script which was used in the 11th century. And uh, there was still a gap on the shelf where this volume had uh, stood. And we then put um, the volume back in the shelf on, on the little space that was there. There's a wonderful detail in your story yeah. from 2010 where you describe 
the librarian finally getting his hands on the on on the missile again yeah. and kissing it for I think you said a minute. Yes, uh, I mean this was extraordinary. The um, librarian was eighty four, so he knew the backstory very well, um, and he'd actually worked in, for the cathedral in the nineteen thirties. And so he'd seen how Benevento had suffered during the war. And when the missile came back, um, he kissed it. And there was sort of a moment of, uh, or quite a long moment of silence uh, whilst he was kissing it. And then he opened up the missile and he showed me some of the um, illustrations. And um, he then opened to a page with musical notation and he chanted the music that was in the missile. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, Take Britain in London opened an exhibition of Rachel Whiteread's work this week. Whiteread's cast of the spaces in and around objects in various materials have led to huge international recognition. She won the Turner Prize in 1993, represented Britain in the Venice Biennale in 1997 and has since gone on to show in museums across the world. The show at Take Britain begins outside the museum with the concrete cast of a chicken shed in the garden and also takes in the central Duveen galleries with the work 100 Spaces, coloured resin casts of the spaces beneath 100 chairs. I went to Take Britain to talk to Rachel about the show. I'm here in the Rachel Whiteread exhibition at Tate Britain and it's set in the 1979 extension which is the space where most recently there was a retrospective of David Hockney's work but it looks entirely different from that show where the Hockney show was divided into a series of rooms which allowed for a chronological sweep through Hockney's career. This is opened out into essentially a single space with a couple of partitions and it means that 30 years' worth of work by Rachel Whiteread essentially occupies a landscape which you can travel through and pick your own chronologies, your own journeys. It contains everything from the most recent work back to the earliest things she produced, and it includes both the monumental and the intimate. For instance, near me here, I can see Room 101, a vast plaster cast of the space in Broadcasting House where George Orwell worked. It's rumoured to be the inspiration behind Room 101 in 1984. But also right next to me here are a series of casts from hot water bottles. And these are profoundly intimately scaled, very bodily and strangely moving objects. So... What we have is undoubtedly a retrospective by Rachel Whiteread, but one which takes a very different, very open approach. And I'm going to talk to her about it now. I would like to start at the beginning because you did have a kind of epiphany on Brighton Beach, is that right? <laughs> uh, well, you really are going back to the beginning. Yeah, well, when I was a student at Brighton, I, um, I used to walk a lot and, and just, you know, I'd always lived in London and it was great to be by the sea and, you know, just great change of atmosphere. And when I was walking on the beach and I used to pick up what I called found lines, which were all these bits of black metal and bits of old tire and rubber. And I'd come back to the studio, at, you know, the, the college, art college with my sort of hordes of crap that I picked up off the beach and then I'd use those in the studio to sort of make like three-dimensional drawings in a way and that was really when I first started to become I'd say a sort of sculptor and to start 
taking things off the wall because I was initially sort of in the painting department and I started to take things off the wall and, and make these sort of three-dimensional drawings, um, which led me to go to the Slade to do an MA in sculpture. And did you, is it right that you also learnt about casting in a quite unusual way it, when you were at Brighton? Well, when I was at Brighton, there's uh, Richard Wilson, the artist Richard Wilson, used to come down and do these fantastic foundry courses, which you'd never be allowed to do now with health and safety. But uh, he'd bring this sort of mobile foundry with him. And um, and I was working down in the in this foundry, and we I just did this very simple thing of pressed a spoon into sand and and then poured some metal in it into it and realized that you know it just changed the spoonness of the spoon it got rid of the sort of um the curve in the spoon and and filled it up with metal and just by doing that very very simple thing you could really change an object and one's perception of an object and in a way i suppose that was my kind of eureka moment and then the, the the show begins with works made in 1988. So you have Closet, which is the first cast of a sort of interior object that you made, essentially. Yeah, that was cast from a um, a wardrobe and um, and then covered in black felt. And that was really, I suppose, that that was the first sort of proper sculpture that I made. Yeah, really the first proper sculpture that I made because when I was at the Slade, I made lots of things, but they all hung on the backs of doors or hung from the ceiling or lent against the wall. And, you know, it was when I made that piece in my studio in Carpenter's Road and realised that you could actually walk around it and it could become, you know, it was this three-dimensional object that you could walk around. It was like, wow, you know, I finally made a sculpture. You know, obviously I don't think that's how a sculpture has to be, but it was really just the notion of, of, a, of a single object. Now, as far as I know, you have come up with a sort of best description with what you do with casting negative space because you wrote a proposal for Ghost at um, the Chisholm Gallery in 1990 in which you talked about mummifying the air. Would you say essentially mummifying the air is your your language, essentially? I, th- I think really that's what I've done you know, over the years, I've, I've, I've made the air solid and, um, you know, things have changed and, you know, there is, you say there's a sort of survey of 30 years of work in this show. And I've used a language which is, you know, developed and changed. And, you know, I think as an artist, you can, you know, it's almost like, you know, making a new alphabet and then you, then you start to make words and then you make sentences and you change the sentences around and, you know, edit things and, yeah, but this is this is a, a survey of thirty years of doing that. Um, quite quickly in your career, you were making very public works. House in nineteen ninety three, for instance, but then also the Water Tower in New York, and the incredibly torturous process of the um, of the Holocaust Memorial in Vienna. How did that affect your actual work, and can we see some of that in the show? In, the, in I mean, your your work made for galleries, essentially. Yeah, those, uh, the, the work in the show, uh, there's a, there's a corridor when you first walk in and it has a series of, of maquettes and photographs of, of all of the sort of larger, um, or more public works that I've made. Um, that was the only way that we could really represent that within the show. I've also made a series of a group of sculptures called Shy Sculptures, which I've made over the past 
sort of 10 years or so. And there, in, there's two in the Mojave Desert. There's, there's one in Norway. Uh, there's one in, in Norfolk in, at Houghton Hall. Um, and they're, they're things, you know, I've tried to make as a reaction to some of the more lurid pieces that have been out in the world and had a very complex time, you know, like the Holocaust Memorial or House. Um, so it's been my reaction to that to make these very quiet sculptures in these, in these, in these quiet areas and that, that take a real journey to get to. You really have to think about being there. The most recent one I've made is called Cabin and that's in New York on a place called Governor's Island. And we have a, just out the front of Tate Britain, there's, there's a work sitting in, in the garden opposite of Barbara Hepworth, I noticed, which I thought was a neat. Yes, there's this, uh, it's a chicken shed, which also came from Norfolk. And, um, this is a more sort of peripatetic version of, of a shy sculpture, um, because the chicken sheds could be moved around and, and put in different places within, within the farmyards. Um, and that's, that's why that's sitting there. Now, one of the interesting moments in your career was, when you had been working on a lot of major public projects in about the mid-2000s, you made a quite clear decision to return to being a maker, essentially, that you'd done quite a lot of big productions and you felt that you really wanted to get back to the sort of nitty-gritty of being a sculptor. Can you tell me a bit about that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, something happens when when you've been, um, when you start to have a big kind of international career, It you know, the, the, the pressures to make work become big you know and and one can end up becoming a sort of producer of, of one's own work so you're conducting a team of people working with them and you're sort of basically artistically directing your own work and I I felt that I really wanted to uh, and it coincided with having children um, that I really wanted to to take charge of things again and just to make it work on a much smaller domestic scale and and use colour and there are a number of group of works here that that come from that period and yeah it was a more it was a way of sort of taking control so I think this survey really is the story of my life you know and if you walk through the show and you you know read the booklet or read the catalogue you'll really understand that that time and that journey that's it because there is a sort of autobiographical quality in there isn't there because the the upturned stairs that are right in the middle of the show are for instance cast from the building that you later became your home and studio just after you 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 bought it is that right that's right yeah yeah yeah. and so that that sort of runs through the show there are there are moments of your life that are picked out yeah yeah I mean that was that was something that we did when we bought this uh, synagogue that we lived in in the east end um and I, I was very sort of overwhelmed by the building and I wasn't quite sure what we were going to do with it. And I'd also been making sort of large sculptures at that time. So I thought, well, I'll just do this. I'll, I'll, I'll just start working with um, casting parts of the building. And I cast the three staircases that were in the building and I cast there was a sort of internal apartment that the rabbi used to live in that I also cast. And, you know, and it was for me, it was very important to have that that way of, of that sort of forensic look at the building and really understand how the building worked and what it was before we could sort of take hold of it and live and work in there. Has there been a shift to an interest in ecology in your work recently? Because it seems to me that these new works 
made with paper mache seem to be reference almost like recycled material it, it is it is all recycled material and it actually came from i mean i think there is a reference to ecology there but it's also a reference to it's a more sort of proustian reference to my own life and how when i recently moved studios and house and it all happened quite quickly and i just couldn't you know, I'm a terrible sort of hoarder of stuff and I couldn't quite get it together to chuck everything away. So I, I bought a lot of it with me and then sort, sorted through it from the new studio as a way of finding out what I was doing there. And I started shredding things and I bought two or three shredders and just, you know, and then this became the new material. So it's all papier-mâché made from my own history. And basically this papier-mâché can be used to kind of... Uh, to cast anything that you can yeah, see around Yeah, and, and it's a full, I've gone a sort of full circle because when I was in my second year at Brighton, I was using papier-mâché. So, yeah, that was a very long time ago now. <laughs> Over 30 years ago. <laughs> Is there anything that has surprised you seeing it again in the retrospective? Um, it, what has surprised me in, in a good way um, is how clear my language is actually and uh, and I'm very proud of the fact that you know seeing all of this work together it's made me realize that I have been working in this way and you know it's not like even though all the work is is very different in lots of ways and there's numerous different materials um, it, there's also uh, a great clarity to it which I've been really happy to see actually. The thing that strikes me walking through the show is there are constant interplays between the monumental and the and the intimate in the sense that you know I was standing I was standing in the gallery a moment ago and I was right next to room 101 but also in in I could see very close to me the the, the hot water bottles is there in a sense are you trying to make sure that people can't people always have to take one with the other and the, in a sense that that presence of the body has to be that that was there. really something that we were clear about when we were sort of hanging the show and and also to do with with sort of color and playing with you know I was treating the whole room uh, you know the whole gallery is a bit like a drawing and wanted to think about how you compose something so that you would always see a bit of color out of the corner of your eye or you know how things worked in terms of perspective um so it was really thinking about the thing as a whole and also I think because most of the objects that I make do come from the domestic environment the other thing that's happened with the show is that it's almost made a series of rooms in itself you know so it's a way of being able to navigate around the show and look at the work in in that way and tell me about the the materials because I think Somebody who might have a sort of cursory knowledge of your work might think of the work as having a quite a minimal uh, effect. But it, you, you, in your choice of materials, it's really evident in the show that, that there is, as you say, a tremendous range of colour, but also a very painterly sense of opacity and transparency and those kind of things. Tell me about those kind of decisions that you make about materials. That, that must well, be, you must take a long time thinking about what, what feels right for what object. Yeah, I think... Um, you know, it's initially started with, I was always very clear that material was purely about 
You know, the the original colours in the materials were came from the colours of the material. So a lot of the early rubber pieces were the colour that the rubber was. The resin hundred spaces were it was a mixture of of, of the two um, chemicals that you had to mix together that would make the different colours. Um, but then I also started dyeing materials later on, and um, you know the mortuary, the piece that comes from the mortuary slab, the white piece. piece I mean that was very much to do with bodily function, and I got the people to make the material, and I wanted it to be the colour of spunk, you know. And you know I think it's it's very um, you know I, I, sometimes I talk to a rubber manufacturer and say well you know the colour of the of your urine first thing in the morning, you know, so to have it that kind of so it's always thinking about sort of bodily functions or um but then later on you know some of the the more sort of little domestic pieces that I made you know they were very playful with color and that was I think because of the children you know coming along and you know so I I think it's uh you know something that's always been in the work and you know I did train as a painter and I make drawings all the time and use a lot of color in drawing last question Tell me about how you come up with your titles, because it seems to me that you, you're always in a... Sometimes there's a sort of quite straight and factual approach, but you're always teetering on the brink of poetry, but pulling back just enough. I think the very early titles were 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 very sort of poetic. There was sort of ether and closet and mantle and ghost and house. And, I mean, house is very direct, but it's still, it could have been called all sorts of other things. It was very purposefully called that. Then, you know, later on, lots of things became untitled. Then they became untitled in and out or untitled up and down or, you know, and it's a way, when you make a lot of work, you need to really you know think about titles but also you need to be able to describe what something is and if everything's untitled unless you start from the beginning and call it one two three four five six seven eight nine ten you know it's you know you really have to think about it it's a it's a dilemma that a lot of artists have and I do you know I love language and I love poetry actually and um so sometimes a title just sort of slips out and other times it stays in Rachel, thanks very much. My pleasure. And that's it for this week. You can read Martin Bailey's full report on the Spoliation Conference on the Art Newspaper's website, where you'll also find in-depth coverage of the Louvre Abu Dhabi Museum, as well as everything you need to know about Pacific Standard Time, the second edition of the sprawling series of exhibitions and programmes across Los Angeles. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at the Art Newspaper. <laughs>